All right, everybody. So we have Martin McDonald on the podcast today. Welcome, Martin. Hi, yeah. Thank you very much for having me. So I know we've talked for a while, a little bit back and forth, and we finally got you on. Uh, I think a lot of people are going to be interested to hear what you have to say. So can you just give a little bit about your background and, and you know, why you're so knowledgeable on all this? Yeah. So um, where to start, really? I essentially started as a, as a sports nutritionist and... Um, I went, I kind of did the bog standard thing, like go to university, do a good degree. And then I was like, yeah, and I was competing in natural bodybuilding at the time. So I had this <clears throat> kind of real interest in training and I wasn't sure if I wanted to be an S&C coach or a physiologist or a nutritionist. And to be honest, at that time, it, nutritionist was a bit of like a, a female dominated thing and it still is yeah. obviously a lot of dietetics it's I think it's like 90 plus percent that nice. wow. um, obviously in sports nutrition it's a little bit different and so anyway it wasn't until someone basically said to me you should become a nutritionist um, because it, you know at least in the UK and at least in the sports nutrition world things were just a bit stale People were very, very like, you should eat low fat. All athletes should be eating carbohydrates. And I was kind of obviously competing in bodybuilding where there was a lot more low carb element, um, less performance, obviously, in bodybuilding compared to maybe some of the, the typical Olympic sports, but just the body composition expert. And they said, look, you could be the best at this. And as soon as they said that, I was like, mm, I like yeah. the sound of being the best. Right. Um, and just love nutrition. I've always loved nutrition and training. So anyway, when I did my master's, and then ended up doing a postgraduate in clinical nutrition because I ended up working with so many individuals who had, you know, diseases of obesity and, and just stuff that was related to that aspect that I wasn't just a sports nutritionist anymore. I wasn't just helping someone lose a little bit of weight. I was, I wanted to be able to at least have some decent insight. I didn't want to be a dietitian. I didn't want to go into hospitals. But I wanted to at least have some understanding of the clinical aspects that I might encounter even just for the simple fact of being able to refer on or say, what, your doctor told you what? Mm, mm -hmm. Maybe you should get a second opinion, you know, not right. to act out my side of my scope of practice and say, stop taking that medication, but just to go, yeah, that's, I've heard different, right. uh, I'm not an expert, but have a look here. So, yeah, my work just ended up going wide-ranging, um, workplace wellness, did lots of corporate wellness programs, individual clients, athletes, Olympians. Like It was super cool, early career, started my consultancy, and um, that's kind of grown from strength to strength. And then three or so years ago, which is, I suppose, why... It's funny, my goal has always been to be kind of well-known, famous, be an influencer. And an influencer is quite a dirty word now, right? Yeah, but right. For me, I wanted to, I feel like I've always had something worthwhile offering to the world. And so why wouldn't I want to be well-known? You know, if you offered me money or fame, I would want all the fame. I don't, you know, money's not a driver for me. Mm. Um, I, would, I just want to be well known so that, and not just so that people can come up to me and have selfies, although I flip in love selfies, I'm sure you've seen on Instagram. Because <laughs> uh, it's just nice, like I just love interacting with people and a bit of a socialite. But to be, to be well known, to have a platform to, to do good, it just really is, is something that I absolutely love the thought of. And I have a very small platform. Um, and I, you know, even seeing what I can do with that is just like feels amazing. So, Anyway, 
three years ago, we launched this online nutrition qualification. And because it was so good, um, I hope I don't, don't sound kind of out of turn saying that, but it, you know, it blew my mind how well it, people received it, the kind of the quality of the content. But even on top of that, the practicality of, because it is taught by only MSc qualified practicing nutritionists, registered nutritionists, dietitians, people who have been in the trenches. We don't teach anything like we, not one of our students. Well, some of them actually are super geeks, but most of our <laughs> students wouldn't be able to go, this is the Krebs cycle and the, you right. know, you know right. glucose six phosphate. Most of them won't have heard of those things. And I'm proud of that because no one needs to know that to the mm -hmm. depth that lots of, you know, that I was taught because, right. you know, if you need to go down that route of research or, Yes, you might need to know it, but if you want to help people in the real world, and even more so than when I was a practitioner, I understand so much more about human psychology and behavior um, that I sort of realize how little, and I'm, I'm sure we might even touch on this on the podcast, but how little lots of the nuances and fancy science stuff that, that I like to discuss, they don't make a real big difference in people's lives. Yeah, yeah. So... Anyway, yeah, the course went massive and therefore my online profile got a, a lot bigger. And um, that's kind of, I suppose, I, I ended up getting more well-known in the industry because of the course as opposed to um, me as a practitioner. It's more me awesome as stuff. an educator. Yeah. Right, right. And, um, you, you know, you mentioned doing good there as you know, part of your goal with being an influencer. And with this podcast, I'm, as we talked about, I, I kind of want to make sure I'm doing some good in the world, too. And so for every one of these, I make a personal donation to a charity. And that's up to you which one I do. So can you tell us which one you chose and a little bit about that charity? Yeah, yeah, cool. This I, I kind of obviously said to you off air, but it's... Um, one of our part, we have four kind of elements of our mission statement, and one of them is is um, yeah about giving back and company profits going to charity. So when you contacted me, I was like, wow, that's so cool! Like I've never heard of someone do do that on a, a podcast. So it's um, uh, I really like that element of it. So Thanks. the the um, charity that I've chosen is um, it's quite a difficult one. Um, to like go oh which one like what one do i want to put on there but i've actually chosen one that um lots of people will know through my instagram billy who's kind of one of our uh, sort of head health and performance nutritionists here and he's one of the mnu tutors but um he he and his family run a charity called the samantha um samantha maritza trust and um so I, i'm sure you'll link it or whatever but it's sam's underscore trust on instagram i think and it's all to do with um uh, something that's quite close to my heart and um, something that I really like being able to raise awareness of and, and uh, promote is this awareness around mental health and mental health issues. So the charities around that. Um, and so, yeah, that's the one that I, I want to choose. Very cool, man. Yeah, great stuff. And, and I definitely will have a link there. <laughs> so diving in now to the questions, uh, one of my more recent podcasts was uh, with a guy, Ray Cronice, and it was, I think, my most commented on podcast because it was pretty controversial. And one of the things that he had talked about, well, the most controversial part was him talking about not really exercising that much while dieting. So we won't get into that. But he did talk about how he believes people can diet a lot faster than they do. And I've, I've heard you talk about that as well. 
And I think that's important when we're talking about general population versus, you know, contest bodybuilders. And, yeah. and I would agree that if you are trying to get contest lean, you have to take it a lot slower, of course, than if you're 40 pounds overweight, you know, and you're trying to lose 30 of that. So um, I, I guess if you could just talk about how quickly you like to have clients lose weight um, when people come to you. And of course, of course, there's going to be variation in, in all of that. But how much faster are we able to lose fat compared to the maybe one pound a week that is often told? Yeah. So, yeah, I am. Um, I think I started talking about this in 2015 when I was basically asked to speak to a massive group of evidence-based personal trainers and like the, the term evidence-based and personal trainer doesn't really go together very often. So um, I, I was honestly, I wasn't nervous, but I, I put a, a lot of thought into when I present. It's one of my passions. It's one of, one of the things I'm probably most well-known for. And I always want to think about the audience and think what they will take away. And I knew this audience had had some webinars from me. They'd had, had teach, you know, I, I'd educated some of their educators. And I knew that they had a really good grounding and I wasn't going to be able to go in there and go, yeah, keto, um, you know, carbs don't make you fat and not everyone needs to eat breakfast. And, you know, I do that in anywhere else. And I'm like, no way. Right, like, right. Sugar's not toxic. Like, no way. So <laughs> I thought really hard about how can I, it was like an eight hour speaking slot. Um, and like an hour for lunch and a couple of breaks. So I thought I, I need to deliver here. <coughs> one of the key areas, I kind of observed this group and, you know, some of their online stuff. And I realized that they were all such nice people that they were being too moderate in their approaches. And they were being, they weren't being evidence-based because they were being too nice. Like, mm -hmm. there's this idea that you'll see on the internet, and I won't name any names, but this idea, just give people one habit at a time. If you just give them one habit, then they'll be able to, that's the only sustainable way to help people lose weight. Not evidence-based. Like, right. I'm sure there will be people listening to your podcast who still believe that. And it's, it's one of these things, even as evidence-based practitioners, you have to hear someone like me say that and then go, I believe that. And, and it'll, it'll trigger people and they'll go, no, you're wrong, Martin. And then your goal is to go away and disprove yourself. Like that is kind of science, disprove yourself. If you can't, then you're onto something and then start work, working your way. But if you can't, lots of things, and I'm very, a big proponent of calling myself out when I've had a message and I've told people this happened after all of my degrees and multiple postgraduates there were certain things I was never taught and I just picked up and I was and then someone challenged me and I was like okay let me find a study oh oh my goodness I, I'm actually off base so anyway this whole one habit at a time and we know from the obesity research that more rapid weight loss strategies often have better outcomes than more moderate approaches. And, and I can talk a bit more about some of the quite cool findings of that. But in 2015, I basically realized that they weren't, we, we know that clients under report, for instance. So they're going, oh, I'm going to put this person in a 200 to 250, 300, 400 calorie deficit. They're not losing weight. Mm -hmm. And 
or, or doing, I'm just going to change this habit. I'm going to get them to eat one, take one fish oil a day and tick it off on a sheet. And then the next week, I'm going to make, make them chew their food 20 times. And these, oh, my clients aren't staying with me. Does anyone know how I can get more clients? No, you don't need to get more clients. You need to retain your clients by doing a better job and doing stuff that has an actual magnitude of effect. Um, and there's this big, there's this big thing about never put someone on less than a thousand calories a day. Like, I don't know if you've seen this, but or, it's almost like human, it's like a thousand calories, anything below that. And you're a bro, right? You're, right. And metabolically damaged people and you're trying to, you know, screw people up. Um, so yeah, I basically went into this talk to basically say to them, stop being so evidence-based. And what I mean by that is stop being so damn nice. Like, stop pussyfooting around. Some people, if they're very short, very light, inactive, female, they're, they might have to diet on less calories than that. And on the flip side of that, regardless of where maybe their BMR or their TDEE may sit, a huge calorie deficit might be more effective. Um and actually, I wrote an article on this um, to do with, I think it was to do with dieting to single-digit body fats or something or other um, for the Alan Aragon Research Review. But basically looked at this um, decaying rate of weight loss for people wanting to get to, like you were talking about, the, the contest-type guys. Right. And actually having a different speed of weight loss. So if you just literally go, I, in contest prep, I'm going to go a pound a week. Dun, 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 dun. The, and a pound a week towards the end of your diet and even I can't remember the maths that I did um, might actually be too fast and you're definitely going to be losing lean body mass at that rate but at the beginning you're you're losing time so what needs to happen is, is this like decaying curve down I don't know yeah, if that's yeah. I, I can't see myself yeah like down like this um, and what that's based on is basically the, the ability, the, the amount of fat you have and the ability to mobilize and make fatty acids available for oxidation and, and to use as an energy source, as a substrate for, you know, exercise and daily tasks. If you are very, very lean, the ability to add your lipolysis and make those fatty acids available is less. So if you're in a big calorie deficit, and uh, I, I don't know the author of this study, actually, but basically... Oh, it begins with B. Anyway, at looking at athletes below the level of 10% body fat, and actually that is a key area where lean body mass losses become an issue specifically, and it's probably more related to this mobilization of fat. Um, so there's a, it's an, it's an Al, the study is by Alpert, and I think it's like 1978, as early as that, but it looked at this, and there was actually a, a recent update of the paper that looked at this, the rate limiting factor and um, you can basically follow the maths on from that and to give people a simple rule so so let's take a, a gen pop client who's 40 percent female 40 percent body fat so not hugely high um for a female you know not out of the realms of um normality for for a weight loss client and essentially you do body fat percentage. In fact, I'm going to use 45. Um, I had a client, one of my recent clients before I stopped working with clients was 48%. So we'll call her 45% body fat. How do you, you test that? Say again. How are you personally testing that? I'm just curious. <clears throat> so she was tested via DEXA. Um, 
And one thing I will say is every single method we use for testing body fat is a stab in the dark. Dexas are obviously one that people are going, oh, it's the gold standard. But honestly, it's it's still not really because it was designed for bone mineral density, as you'll know. Um, that's what it's the gold standard for. The gold standard is a four compartment model, which funnily enough, the Longland et al. 2016 study where they showed muscle gain in a calorie deficit. People are like, no way, that never happened. Your, your study's rubbish. And they literally had done the four compartment model, which like no other study in the world does. Yeah. You know, oh, we did skin fold calipers and bicep girth to estimate muscle mass. Right. <laughs> These guys had people doing DEXA, bioelectrical impedance analysis, like ridiculous. Um, so yeah, that was, that was fire DEXA. Um, and um, so 45% body fat. <clears throat> she, you divide that body fat percentage by, and I kind of give the, the initial Alpert study said, if you use their data, it's 13. If I think, um, I think it's Greg Knuckles, but don't, don't quote me on that, has said more like 20 based on their updated stuff. And um, I, taking that plus all the other fast rate rates of weight loss studies, I feel like 15 is, is a good number you can use. If you want to be super conservative, which I don't see why anyone would want to be with a lot of body fat to lose, because lean body mass loss is irrelevant anyway. Like, you'll gain it back so fast. Muscle memory is a thing. Um, and most of your gym pop clients, you know, for instance, I'll take this client I'm talking about, she didn't care if she lost some muscle. Um, right. And she was fairly untrained, so it was, it was highly unlikely she was going to, and we could easily gain more muscle than she started with, all of these factors. So, yeah, if you've got a comp prep bodybuilder, maybe go to 20. Um, so, yeah, f divide that 45 by 15 gives you three, and that's 3% of current body weight, and she was very heavy. Right, um, right. I think she was about 125 kilos-ish. Um so you go, let's call it 120 kilos, you go um, 3% of your 120 kilos, and suddenly, uh, what was it one pound you used in the example? So that's like 484 grams, like half a kilogram. Suddenly, you go 3% of 120, 1% 1 of 120 is 1 1.2 kilograms. So we're talking 3.6 kilograms a week, possible, which is then like was 7.2 and, and a fifth so like 7.9 pounds a week potentially this lady would be able to lose in purely fat mass um i think i might have maybe i heard you wrong or maybe you misspoke I, did you say 15 would be more conservative because i would think that'd be more aggressive right you'd end up getting a Sorry, numbers. I did say that. What you're saying is correct. 15 is slightly more aggressive. 20 is more conservative. Okay. So, yeah. So, for instance, if we go conservative, you can go, um, what numbers are I using? 45. So, 45 divided by 20. Um, and that will give you a more conservative figure. Right. Okay. So, the, and so, this would these, apply even it's, for... There's a fast rate, right? Go on, you go. Oh, so, yeah, I'm just thinking... A lot of people who watch this, we definitely have some general population who might be 40, 45 percent 
I think a, a lot of the population is people who have been lifting, you know, I would say like intermediate lifters, but let's use somebody like myself. So I've been lifting for, you know, depending on how seriously I take it, 12 to 14 years, I would say. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty much have all the muscle mass I'm going to have. And if I'm, let's say I'm 205 pounds now, I don't know, let's say 15%, but again, that, that's a visual. So if I yeah. want to get to 185, right, I'm going to be beach lean. I'm definitely not going to be close to contest lean. You would still use that formula and, and you know, give us, if you could maybe use those real world numbers roughly yeah. how fast do you think somebody could get there yeah yeah cool that's amazing so if you you said what did you say body weight 205 yeah and let's say roughly 15 percent. Okay, so let's, let's say a little over 30 pounds of body fat perfect so in that instance let's just make it even easier so so if we go 200 pounds and 15% body fat. So we do it's the simple thing of 15% divided by 15. So 1%. And so in that instance, if you wanted to be 100% sure and be conservative that you wanted to lose only fat mass, and this is day to day basis, but also cumulative for the whole of your diet. And people forget this. And if they don't listen to all of like, if I I've kind of got some lectures on this, if they forget that if they're doing this, and, and I'll talk about how you do this pragmatically, actually. This is going to be a good podcast, by the way. Um, <laughs> so, you know, in your instance, it was 15 divided by 15 is 1, and that's 1% of total body weight, and 1% of 200 pounds is 2 pounds. So we're going to be looking for 2 pounds a week. And then what you do for that is you then work out the supposed calorie deficit you would need to lose 2 pounds a week, which... Nicely enough, most people know this, 3,500, approximately, if right. we just ignore all of the stuff that Kevin Hall's done disproving that because he's too clever, <laughs> um, but approximately, because you're going to misreport anyway. So we're going to look for a 7,000 calorie deficit per week to lose these two pounds. The problem is, is if people do any kind of refeeds right. or um, changes in that, that affects the macro. So you can't just go thousand, 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 because what I would personally do is I would, in, so that's seven days, a thousand calorie deficit each day. I personally would go like 1500 um, calorie deficit a day. The reason I do that is I feel better that way um, as a process. And I can talk about this a bit about this, but as a process and for my adherence, it's better. The thing that happens then is I lose lean body mass. But what people need to remember is when you lose lean body mass, it's not necessarily myofibrillar proteins we're talking about. It's things like muscle glycogen. So we need to dip into other sources because we can't purely use fat. So you will then start to become glycogen depleted. Then my, my personal preference is to do that for a period and then do a refeed period of, of whatever it is suitable for me at that time. If I'm wanting to maybe try and have some small beneficial metabolic and hormonal effects, I'll try and do a refeed for 72 hours. If it's just for me, for pleasantries, for social, it, it might just be a single day, for instance. But then I look at, right, I dieted on a 1500 calorie deficit for two weeks. But on day 14, I had all of these extra calories. And my average over that should come out somewhere around 1000 a day if I want to purely be losing um, lean body mass. So in your instance, what would happen is you would have to have this decaying thing if you don't want to lose muscle. Um, 
So you would start at two pounds. And obviously, once you've lost those two pounds, your body fat percentage is going to go down by a very right. small amount, obviously. So then that two pounds need to go, eventually it'll be one and a half and one and a half. This is if you don't want to lose any muscle whatsoever. Right. Um, and, you know, you, you're going to get very lean um, doing so. So that's more of the, that's where this kind of moderate rate has come from. Fitness industry, personal trainers. If every personal trainer is 15% body fat and less, they do need to diet slowly or they're going to lose muscle. You know, they need right. to diet slower than two pounds a week. But even then, lots of people focus on half to one because that's going to make you look better on stage, bro. But it's not the case. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point to make because if people just hear, oh, you can actually diet way more aggressively, they might think, oh, great, I'm 15%, I can lose five pounds a week. But even, you know, with this decaying, you know, rate, you're still probably looking at about 15 weeks to lose that 20 pounds. You know, we're not talking an incredibly rapid pace here if you're already lean compared to 30, 40% body fat. Exactly. <laughs> that's what we have to remember. The, the way bodybuilders do it is maybe, in my opinion, often wrong in the early stages of their diet, but actually when you get closer to show, almost the slower the better, getting ready a bit earlier, a bit like the whole kind of 3DMJ methodology, if you're right. yeah. aware of any of that, it's, it's great. But for clients who most people should, I know as personal trainers, lots of people are like, tell me again about muscle gain. It's like, how many muscle gain clients do you have? None, it's for me. <laughs> um, but for your clients it's a different ball game they're not single digit body fats they're not in the 20s etc cetera, etc cetera. so and they don't necessarily want to step on stage so going back to that client of mine she just wanted to be smaller she wanted to be smaller in her clothes she wanted to be more mobile everything losing some muscle on her legs they would feel smaller in jeans and she would be happier um i'm not talking about like putting on a zero protein diet or anything crazy she's still right. going to exercise but it's uh she doesn't care about whether she loses a little bit of lean body mass, um, which I'm fairly sure she it would be almost impossible in her case because of the newbie gains. But either way, they don't mind so much. They're not stepping on stage. Right. And I, I don't know if you factor this in when you're teaching as well, but I know if somebody comes to me as a client and they ask for help, I'll factor in train age in the sense that I feel more comfortable being more aggressive in the diet if they're less experienced, because if they lose a little bit more lean body mass, the second that dieting phase is over, they're going to get that back and then surpass it relatively quickly. Mm. Versus if somebody's really advanced, it's like they're just trying to hold every little bit. They, they might really be happy that they dieted down and had one pound more muscle than last year. So it's a little different. Yeah. Like natural bodybuilders are a different breed. You know, like ones that have been competing for like 10 years, it's like, oh, how can you do it? It's just yeah. such a painful <laughs> process. Like you have literally yeah. described the scenario. I've got one pound more muscle for a year's worth of training, six yeah. days a week, and every single meal was on point. And it's like, man, like I wish I had that kind of stay a bit <laughs> with any part of my life. Um, yeah, right. So, yeah, it's, um, it, it is a different scenario in, with those guys. Uh, you mentioned a little bit there the refeed and how it's going to vary depending on your reason. You know, if it's just social, obviously one day could could work. So obviously it's going to depend on your reason for doing the refeeds. But I think in the last year, maybe two years now, um, these longer diet breaks have become a lot more popular. You know, people have kind of shown, well, there's really not that much of a hormonal difference or metabolic difference from one day. Um, obviously, you, you there are some people who go crazy on cheat days, and maybe we can talk about the 
um, the issues with having these like massive binge single cheat days. Yeah. But I think there's been some good evidence showing that a slight surplus for a longer period of time, you know, just getting out of that dieting phase for maybe even like a week um, has a lot of benefits. So I don't know how much you've implemented that. Yeah. So this is one of those areas like, yeah, so cheat, cheat meals and cheat days are really, I, th- I can't remember, I think I did a post on this basically saying it'd be amazing if we could just leave them. Maybe that was in 2018. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, basically let's like, 2020 let's have a year when no one says cheat meal or cheat day um unfortunately because of people like the rock he won't be going away anytime soon but he's often someone i use in kind of uh educational settings of like he can get away with it and he is there are there are both physiologicals there are screwy things that cheat meals and days do both physiologically and psychologically The physiological is not so damaging in that it's just stupid. There's no benefit physiologically and it sets you further back because you eat an inordinate amount of calories in a short period of time. And some people think that the body doesn't realize and it's like, oh, it's okay. I ate 10,000 calories, but it probably can't store that many. So after like 3,000, it probably just go through you. And it's like, no, your body's really freaking good at absorbing, at digesting, absorbing, assimilating, storing all of that energy from dairy milk that you consumed. So <laughs> um, it's an issue. And, and people go, oh, you know, I've been dieting for this long. And, it's, and they forget the, the cheat day. They had the day before they started, right. the day after. Right. And it's like, no, I'm sorry, but look at the cumulative. If you look at the cumulative and you average out the calories from T minus one and, you know, the day after you finished, you're in a maintenance because of those two stupid days where like probably your stupid prep coach told you you could have a cheat day because it'll just boost your metabolism, bro. Right, um, right. This doesn't happen. So a small continuous surplus over about 72 hours has a small positive impact on, on certain things like, you know, thyroid, T3, it, a small positive impact on a, like total energy expenditure over the day, um, it increases leptin slightly. So all of these things are positive. The actual magnitude of their effect overall is a slightly more difficult discussion um because you have this discussion of okay oh for instance a week or two weeks at like a 65 percent carbohydrate diet at maintenance or slightly above maintenance will restore some of the metabolic adaptations that occur with dieting so essentially it's metabolism raising um you are slightly more wasteful with your energy etc the problem is is the small benefits that that has we then don't know there's not to my knowledge been any comparison between someone who let's say diets for 20 weeks like this versus someone who diets for you know say 10 weeks two week break and another eight or 10 weeks and that would be a discussion in the study design of are we going to compare based on 20 weeks time or are we going to compare based on dieting time? Um, right. Lots of lots of research doesn't do that well, which is very annoying. So lots of the the fast weight loss research that you will see people in the fitness industry quoting when they're like, "Oh, don't crash diet, bro." And obviously, I'm not crash diet is not a defined terminology. But when people go, "Oh, Martin McDonald, look at this study by Garth et al. Look at this study," and the problem is, is they 
they're comparing apples and oranges. They'll compare a four weeks, a, a study that has compared a fast and slow rate of weight loss, but the fast group only dieted for half the time. And then they'll go, the group that dieted for eight weeks had slightly better outcomes. It's like, hold on, you're comparing four weeks versus eight. Give my four-week group that the four weeks that your group was still dieting to eat at maintenance because they both lost the same body fat, but your group managed to train a bit better. Um, my group were at maintenance for four weeks. Then let's compare. But that isn't done in the studies or, right. you know, like testosterone is, is you know, when they, when they do same time for time, it's like, oh, the, this group <coughs> was on a large calorie deficit, like two, 4.4 pounds versus 2.2 pounds. They dieted for the same amount of time. And it's like, look, testosterone was significantly lower in the fast rate of weight loss group. And it's like, right. yeah, and they lost twice as much body fat. It's like diet your group for twice the time to get to the same body fat, then test their testosterone. So anyway, yeah. it's a little rant of mine. Um, yeah, yeah. So... This thing of, okay, we're comparing 20 weeks or 22 weeks, etc. We know that it's a bit of a discussion, really, is in that two weeks of maintenance, the way I do this, so I call it like multiphasic and multifaceted dieting strategies. So this multiphasic is this what we're discussing here of dieting in, in phases. So you might have an aggressive phase, you might have more moderate periods, and this is where you tie things in to the client that you're working with and their lifestyle you can plan ahead and then adjust based on what happens in real life you know i'm you know the i'm not going to have any stresses with work at this time i'm going to be able to hit the gym hard and do this versus you know i'm not going to be able to prep my you know any of my food at this time i'm going to be eating out loads Therefore, you, you know, you take all of this information and you put it into, right, this could be a good aggressive stage. This we might just maintain. We might look at um, eating just um, uh, just purely through habits and no calorie tracking, for instance. And that I call that like coaching to live. Like if you have periods, if we are talking about gen pop clients, coaching them to live so through this process like oh what do i do after my diet oh well you remember that two weeks where you didn't calorie count and you didn't weigh any food and you just used rough habits and you did these things that's what we're going to try and mimic in your real life now rather than building habits that are only habits that lead to weight loss and fat loss and and dieting strategies so looking at these different phases and <clears throat> looking at hunger looking at motivation etc um for me the benefit is more currently based on current evidence um the strength is within it's a tool in the toolbox as opposed to some strong physiological benefits so i'm sure you're aware of the matador study mm -hmm. which they basically it was 16 week study and dieted two groups one on a consistent calorie deficit for 16 weeks and one and this blows my mind still to this day because when you hear the study, you're like, oh, the, 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 the other group who only dieted for eight, you think, oh, they doubled, their, they doubled the deficit. But they didn't. They literally said, diet for two weeks on the same as the other group. This, you, the groups are the same in the first two weeks. The week three and four, nothing. Just chill out. Just chilled out vibe. Don't think about dieting. Get on with your life. Weeks five and six, you're dieting again. 
chill out for two weeks. So they literally dieted in the same way, but for only half the time mm -hmm. interspersed. And the outcomes of the study were that the, the intermittent group or the group with bi-weekly kind of diet breaks um, ended up better off. And so there's discussions around, okay, did that impact NEAT um, a lot? Did it impact adherence a lot? And, and lots of these things are difficult to, to pull out of the data, but it's just interesting and it adds weight to what you're kind of discussing here of like these these diet breaks or the these um i call those diet breaks versus refeeds were a bit more which are a bit shorter and a bit more strategic right um, maybe aggressive so i know there are currently some studies going on using only i think three weeks on one week off um and it's just an interesting area to look at especially as to its effects on metabolic adaptation so we know that there are these profound effects with fat loss of slowing of metabolism a through just weighing less but b through these adaptations that happen in the body and a big proportion of that is a reduction in just wasteful movement and energy expenditure um to the order of like 600 calories a day is gone that you didn't know about just because you fidgeted less and you did a few less steps but without realizing um so yeah it's 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 a super interesting area and for me at the minute it's like it's cool to do with clients it's mm -hmm. cool if it makes sense to do it if it's a holiday or if it's um a period where they're super stressed and you don't want to add further stress through dieting um it can be useful awesome awesome i think um, a lot of these studies a lot of things you're talking about it's you know, they look and they say, well, this one had a benefit, but like you said, if, if you had another four weeks with that group, it, it would kind of even out, or maybe that one would be better. Um, as I, you know, I, you know, I'm subscribed to mass that like Greg Knuckles and, and them all do. And I think it's, it's a great resource, but a lot of the time, the conclusion is kind of like, didn't make that much of a difference, you know? And, and I think that's yeah. just kind of the case with a lot of things I, I talk about. Yeah. It. It's the worst thing for me as a coach to talk about is how much stuff doesn't matter. But thankfully, since this is not really how I, I make anywhere near like my primary income, um, I can be very honest and blunt about things. I don't feel pressured to, to sell it or anything like that. Yeah. And I really do have to say that most things don't matter that much, you know, and some things matter a lot, but it's a small list. You know, your genetics are obviously huge. Consistency is huge. Obviously, you should be lifting weights progressively over time. Um, but that's, I mean, that's, you know, do that for five, 10 years and, and that's really your results. Um, and I don't want people to think there's no difference with any of these things. I think if you're like me and you, and, and you really like to look into those details, it's cool to talk about. Yeah. I think it can make 5% difference, maybe 10, if, if you're talking about like all of these things together. Um, but you know, at some point I'm not going to have 60 podcasts on how nothing matters. Right. So, so yeah, yeah. that's why we delve into some of these details. Um, so I, I kind of wanted to ask you. Uh, it matters for me personally, but I think some people are interested in, in inflammation. And that's obviously a term that people hear and they hear it, it's kind of almost like a bro -y term. So yeah. I've personally dealt with uh, inflammatory issues and not like, like I said, not like, oh man, I got to deal with my inflammation, bro, but like medical inflammation issues. Um, so for me, I'm particularly interested in it, but mm. just in general, um, some things I know that you've talked before about saying multivitamin, uh, which I think 
I don't know when you said that, but I think there is some controversy even with that. Um, fish oil, and I think there was like one other supplement you talked about recommending for a lot of people. I wanted to get your opinion on curcumin um, and mm. how that relates, because I, I feel like I've seen quite a bit of evidence for that. Um, yeah. So that that's one. And then two, you know, keto, again, obviously a super buzz term now, um, obviously nothing new, been around for a very long time, and it has actual like medical uses, like for seizures and things like that. I've talked to Dom D'Agostino. I have no idea if you have any opinion on him, but he, he seems to really be a proponent of it from an anti-inflammatory uh, perspective. So yeah. obviously one's diet, one supplement, but again, I just kind of want to hear your thoughts there. Yeah. So, so we'll start with it. So the most commonly used term, I suppose that people have heard of is like turmeric, mm -hmm. which is, you know, curcumin, however you want to say it, wherever you are from the, in the world. And, um, so it's this spice that people are aware of, and it's this part of the spice, the curcumin and, yeah, it's um, the evidence is strong as far as I'm concerned with regards to anti-inflammatory, and um, if people were suffering with with numerous different things that obviously, um, in fact, there's there's a real bro. I'm trying to think of his name. Am I allowed to name names? Go for it. Yeah, um, he's the super jacked American. He's like an American footballer. I can't believe. Tom Thomas Thomas Delauer. Um, I don't oh, know if yeah, yeah, I He's like, this is the secret. I found this secret. This is more important. He's this guy who's like macros and keto, and he's like, the best snack you can get is pork scratchings because they're keto, and like he's just a full-on bro, and like yeah. I think probably making a lot of money by misleading people. Um, and he 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 did this. Thing that I think he must have put thousands into the kind of ads machine oh, wow, really? get this everywhere and he basically was like macros and keto and even having a protein shake after training none of that matters and as much as this this thing I'm gonna tell you you know click the link in my bio buy this thing and it was turmeric and then he was like, right. like anti-inflammatory and so he's sort of taken a little bit of truth i.e. yes but we obviously have this understanding that you can potentially dampen the response from training by right. using things that reduce inflammation, like your antioxidants, like your vitamin Cs, your vitamin Es, these sort of things. So you have these in super high supplemental doses, and they can actually lower the signal for adaptation to get better. So he's going, you need to have this curcumin, you know, whatever tablet and or powder in your shake, etc. But anyway, so for for people with, um, you know, for instance, joint issues um it's it's certainly up there i i i think i'm right in saying that the strength of research would be a lot stronger for that than for something that is super well known like glucosamine sulfate yeah. um supplementation so i've got some kind of interesting views on glucosamine um i won't go into them because i they're not even dots connected in my head but as a general rule of thumb it's not a super mega effective joint healing supporting supplement that that right. it's kind of touted to be but um we'll save that I feel like that's been established for a while that i mean i remember looking into it in like late high school and i feel like even then seeing that there really wasn't a ton of evidence for it yeah yeah um but yet it's still like the major thing that flies off the shelves yeah. for people with 
you know, oh, I'm 60 now, my joints are hurting, and straight away, they'll just walk into a health food shop. You need glucosamine, it fixes you. Um, So, uh, uh, where was I? So yeah, turmeric, for for those kind of things, like decent. The keto thing is a funny one. Um, And I'm, so these are my thoughts, right? So I've worked with so many people, and and even interacted with, with, thousands, probably tens of thousands of people now around forums, around social media, around the internet, through clients, through talks, etc. Um, oh yeah, it must be tens of thousands. <laughs> so I come across a lot of people with different diseases and issues, inflammatory issues, and even so, for instance, um, who's the guy I was speaking to? He had not MS. Mm. He had, anyway, I can't remember off the top of my head. Mm, I should probably Google it on my phone. But anyway, some of these things, like we are still trying to understand some of these diseases and what might help. Even if we talk about like autoimmune diseases, people like cut out gluten. And there is this very, very, very small bit of animal data that shows there's some stuff to do with antibodies um, for Hashimoto's, and it's it's so pointless you right. shouldn't bother but there is this tiny bit of evidence and so like i'm completely open to the thing of someone finding something somewhere somehow that there is an impact the thing with keto is and i, I said this actually on a podcast recently that keto isn't a fat right. keto isn't um some stupid souped up shake or pill it's something that we know has like ketosis is a state of the body which has profound effects on your physiology and so we know that for instance drug resistant epilepsy which again i mentioned on that podcast is hugely impacted by a ketogenic diet so to go no keto is just another way to be in a calorie deficit for fat loss yes like you keto does not undermine the laws of thermodynamics it's not a magic cure for fat loss although if it does help you particularly with appetite suppression which it isn't a universal rule of keto um fantastic but then you get onto this way that it changes metabolites and the changes in the the kind of glycolytic system, et cetera, and you relying on ketones as a fuel source and that what that might do to the brain, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the the caveat I would put on this is um and I'm I'm still in like I'm like having two conversations here, the one out loud and the one in the back of my head going trying to figure out the disease name. I even remember his name, Chris. <laughs> his name, Chris. And what did he have? It was an inflammatory condition? Yeah. It's a really obvious one. Loads of pain, debilitating pain all day long. To not MS? Maybe it was MS. Maybe I'm... I don't think it was MS. Anyway. Because um, my friend's mum's got MS, and that's why I was thinking MS, because, again, doing that... Um, anyway, I'll try to stop. I'll get it out of my head. Yeah, I'm yeah. probably going to look this up after the podcast and message you. Sure. Yeah, um, go for it. <laughs> fibromyalgia. Ooh. Oh, yeah, yeah. There you go. I knew it was there. Um, <laughs> he, and, and I, you know, 
probably a few dozen people over the years regarding fibromyalgia. And they have tried, because of the internet, ketogenic diets. And at least 25% of them have felt like they noticed a difference. And this is you know, a slightly different scenario we're talking about here. But the thing I think to, you have to bear in mind is a calorie deficit, as much as that's almost become a layman's term, um, you know, a negative energy balance. And as much as it's like, oh, all you ever talk about is just, you know, eating less. But a being in a, in a negative energy flux reduces inflammation in the body. I was going to say maybe, did those people lose weight? Do you know those 25%? It, no, like they're not, these are just like, uh, you know, social type scenarios. Yeah. Like, these aren't clients. Yeah. Okay. So, but, but, you know, someone goes on keto, it, I find it very, very hard to believe in the first week or two they won't be in an energy deficit until they learn to do the thing that keto people learn to do, and that's put butter on everything and put bacon wrapped right. in everything. You know, it's like everyone loses weight on keto at first, and then they go, oh, bacon's keto, and then they right. manage to maintain body weight, eating bacon, butter, coconut oil, and olives and avocado. So... um. This is this is one of my the sort of caveat is if if you if someone goes on and it's like the vegan diet oh my goodness my joints felt so much better when I went vegan and it's like you lost some body weight you eat and you were eating like crap before and then you ate better and you ate some more vegetables right. and we know if you go on an anti-inflammatory diet which does i will say have different definitions depending on who you speak to and within the research different people have tried to clarify that in different ways you know you've got the inflammatory index that's um i can't remember who created but essentially eating a healthier diet helps with inflammation Mm -hmm. but then can we go a step further with a ketogenic diet and that's where i'm not certainly not convinced but I'm certainly not saying there's not something that's potentially useful um, on top of that. But it's, you know, if you do look at, for instance, the more basic weight loss studies where you have a ketogenic diet or a, or a low carbohydrate, high fat diet versus lower fat diets, and you look at some of the inflammatory markers, the interleukins, um, C-reactive proteins, whatever you're looking at, they all do kind of improve. Keto does often improve a little bit more, and sometimes that reaches statistical significance. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it also just because they were in a slightly more, like slightly greater calorie deficit because they were adhering slightly more because they were less hungry because of ketosis? I don't know. Right. So, does that give my thoughts in an okay way? Yeah, yeah. I was going to say right before that. Um... I wish more people did measure and like, obviously I'm not expecting the average person to go get a ton of blood work, but just out of my own curiosity, I have, and I, you know, I've tested CRP and ESR, things like that. Um, and it's hard because a lot of these studies, there is somewhat of a deficit or people just happen to lose weight. And so well, not happen to, they happen to lose weight because of the deficit, but you know, and so the inflammatory markers change and it's like, well, then how do we know what's going on here? Um, it, it can yeah. be difficult. Now I personally made sure to eat the same calories, on keto um and so it was interesting to see what happened with that it it was it's pretty hard for me to maintain on keto just i mean i'm literally like drinking oil and it's disgusting actually (laughs) um and i usually have a big appetite but 
CRP, I mean, it did go down a little bit. It wasn't like a dramatic change. Um, I felt better at times, but at the same time, like all that oil, I think, I think maybe if you're in a deficit with keto and you're not chugging oil, <laughs> then it, it's probably a little bit more helpful um, from the inflammatory standpoint. Yeah, I think there's all the also the other factor of like there's there's many definitions of a ketogenic diet, isn't there? So yeah, sure, um, or not definitions, but there's many um, ways people apply it. Ways people apply it. So you've got you you can have a fairly healthful Mediterranean esque ketogenic diet, mm-hmm. or you can just be a bit of a moron and yeah. um, eat no vegetables and and all of your fat coming from a very um narrow spectrum of fatty acids um etc so also one thing that i will just say and because it's it's nice to say stuff like this on air because if in like five years time a study shows this then i can go i said this um (laughs) i have this belief and we'll call it a belief because it's it's currently a hunch and um so i suppose it's not like it's not like a strong belief but it's it's a hunch and it is based on data and physiology plausible physiology and mechanisms but essentially i think a lot of the benefits that you see with like intermittent fasting keto lower carbohydrate methodologies um and when i say intermittent fasting i mean anything from windowed eating to five two which obviously like an extreme couple of days um, to alternate day fasting, which is an even ex- more extreme single day. I think some of the benefits to be seen in those situations are potentially of higher magnitude than are is currently seen in studies, <clears throat> but they are so transient that they are just, it's just an initial impact. So if you have completely full muscle glycogen liver glycogen because you've been in a calorie surplus and a super high carbohydrate and maybe high fat diet at the same time calorie excess unhealthful lifestyle no exercise if you and you know you've got this you've this kind of metabolic inflexibility simply due to the fact that you're becoming um essentially pre-diabetic pre-diabetic and um you know consistently elevated insulin levels and and etc etc so you have someone who's respiratory quotient respiratory exchange ratio essentially they're a carb burner is like what the industry would call them and rather than someone needing to be low carb or or keto for a long period of time if you just have this initial period where you just bring carbohydrate levels from absolute maximum super compensated you know athlete level carbo loaded glycogen levels to something that is more moderate or just essentially giving that person that and that person's body a pool a sponge a bucket that that muscle mass is and one of the you know we know that some of the metabolic diseases and blood glucose dysregulation with aging if we lose a lot of muscle mass that is a place we can put blood glucose away into Mm -hmm. and so if someone actually 
doesn't have that because it's just constantly topped up. So with a windowed eating protocol or a single day fast or just going low carb for a day or two so that they bring these levels down from maximal, actually the whole system might be able to just work a little bit better because there is this thing that on a meal by meal basis, they're able to shuttle away some of the blood glucose and insulin can come back down and they can go back to being a, you know, a fat burner. Um, and obviously all of this is dictated by energy balance in terms of how much fat you will lose. So a fat burner doesn't mean you're losing fat, but it's just meaning, meaning you might be relying more on fatty acids for your stable energy levels. Um, so that's just one of my thoughts around this area of like keto and low carb and fasting, etc. is that it might just be uh, bringing us down from this basically maximal muscle glycogen, liver glycogen levels mm -hmm. so that we're just able to better regulate something that's quite important, which is, uh, which is our blood glucose. So anyway, yeah, yeah. just, that's yeah. just a random thought. No, no, fantastic. Um, so this is actually something I've gotten a few questions on. It doesn't actually apply to me that much because I don't drink that much alcohol, but I think a lot of people who, if they've been in this for a little while, I think they kind of know it's, it's not this huge issue to have, you know, moderate amounts of alcohol. But I still do get the question quite a bit if, if somebody is new to working with me. Um, so can you just give like some general guidelines? I think if I've seen some of your posts, I think you do drink, right? Yeah, I actually don't. It's I'm a real funny one, right? I don't like the taste of any alcohol i don't think like i quite mm -hmm. like mojitos on hot when i'm on holiday just mainly because i think they put sugar don't they around the rim of the yeah. glass mm -hmm. and i love sugar and um is there another drink i like baileys with like a pint of milk occasionally mm -hmm. like once every five years but yeah. anyway i don't actually like the taste of alcohol but i do drink simply from a um, kind of celebration slash partying so when i did my right. tour last this year earlier this year i would have I would go out and, and party at all the events and we're at all of our graduations of our students I'll always drink so I've kind of got this reputation for being a bit of a drinker <laughs> when I, I didn't drink at university yeah. I was like that guy with a diet coke bottle in his hand because right. I didn't want to order a pint of diet coke because I didn't want them to just click the one with full sugar because I didn't want to drink like five liters of full sugar so I would always buy the more expensive bottles so I knew I was in it um so anyway, and then also the fact that I just, for some reason, have lost the ability to get a hangover, which is mm. bizarre. I got tagged in a story. Someone had asked a question to um, a guy with a, I think he's got a PhD or maybe just a professional doctor or something or other. He did, or he did his master's thesis in the hangover and its effects on something or other. Anyway, he was like, is it true? Is Martin McDonald lying? <laughs> about not getting hangovers or is that really possible it's so funny so anyway yeah i kind of get asked like, the alcohol questions all the time and yeah. i don't know why i don't get hangovers but and i also think the way i do it is probably or almost certainly not the most helpful way to do it because it is essentially binge drinking um yeah so don't don't copy me i'm not trying to influence people in that way um but as a general rule, the, the interesting thing with alcohol is that if you look at the research and a lot of the kind of epidemiological research, ab abstaining from alcohol versus drinking a very small amount of alcohol, you're healthier. Now, the problem is, is that is massively confounded 
by the fact that you get essentially people who have had issues with alcohol who then become complete abstainers, teetotal, who right. then have also got the knock-on health effects that that has had. So it's a bit of an issue. Now, I think from a lifting perspective, recovery perspective, there's a limited amount of data, but there was the interesting rugby player study where they got them to do a decent training session and then they gave them, I believe it was, there was a few groups, but it was something like water, whey protein, whey protein and carbohydrate and whey protein and vodka. Yeah. And um, do you know this study? I've heard of it. I don't remember yeah. the outcome. It's such a, like, it's just hilarious. <laughs> but the amount of vodka, I think, in the study was the equivalent of, I think, about 12 shots of vodka. And that's in this oh, wow. small peri-workout period. Wow. As opposed to what someone might do, which is train in the day, and then they'll be going out four to six or, you know, however many hours later, two to yeah, six hours yeah. later, where, where, wherever we are, um, which we then don't have the data on what that. So what happened in that instance is was the alcohol, sorry, should say that, is it dampened the um, muscle protein synthesis response to the whey protein. So it's like, oh, geez, you're going to get less jacked if you drink alcohol. And then the thing is just like, after training. Yeah. Who's doing <laughs> No one, uh, other than maybe a maybe after you game. won a game or something. Yeah. So on yeah. a weekend, you can think, okay, these these players may legitimately be playing on a Saturday and going soon after and drinking a copious amount of alcohol, and if they then have a Tuesday game, for instance, because of match fixtures and this, that, and the other, they may have a protein shake after the game, and actually they may not be getting into you know. After a game, lots of people are destroyed. You've got bad DOMS. <coughs> we know that kind of rate of force development will be lower in the, the day after. We're trying to maximize recovery so that by Tuesday we can play again. Mm. Again, it's like, mm, is it going to make that big a difference? Like, we've only dampened. It's not switched off, for instance. And this is with, like, binge, you know, 12 shots yeah. of vodka. Um, so I think the impact is much smaller. Lots of people are like, Martin, I've... I just wondered, I was told that if you drink alcohol, you can't lose body fat. You know, I, I like a drink. I'm currently on a, my own weight loss journey. I've lost 20 pounds and I like to drink. Can you let me know? And I was like, what's the question? You've yeah. just told me you drink <laughs> and you've lost 20 pounds. Are you worried that you your scales are broken? Like if, yeah. Um, there is this right. idea that it's magical because alcohol is a preferential fuel source and you're right. potentially you'll oxidize other substrates, macronutrients, carbohydrate, fat, etc. less when it's in your system. Um, but the, it's not this, you know, if you are drinking regularly and in large amounts, it's going to reduce recovery. Definitely. It's not going to be good for your health. Um, regularly in very small amounts. And I'm talking like one very small, well, we're probably, probably talking like what, three to four glasses of wine a week. It's like, your Mediterranean optimal, whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, but uh, even then, it's you, you know, there's people in the blue zones who probably drink, or who certainly are documented as, as drinking more than that. In some of them, um, even some of them, the blue zones being the healthiest people in the world. Um, so 
yeah there's uh, pragmatically it's like live your life like don't get consumed by um by like oh i want to get as jacked as possible so i'm never going to go out and socialize and never drink like a you don't have to drink to socialize that's why i kind of always tell people at my events they're like oh i want to come to the after party but i don't drink and i'm like brilliant loads of people at the after parties don't drink and right. sometimes my staff don't drink because they have to drive me home the next day yeah right so, like they and they have a great time um and like occasionally when i'm speaking at events conferences like i'll go out because i love socializing and partying and not drink so that's the first thing secondly like you said earlier oh i've been you know i've got as much muscle as i'm probably gonna have and then it's a case of therefore you know as natural trainers it's like then what's your next most important thing if it's part of your social life it's part of your psychological health if you really love the taste of these horrible drinks that I don't understand why people like the taste of beer and well, yeah. um, then, then, then live your life. There's not, it's so difficult to give like specific recommendations because it's, it's just not going to impact. It's like an, if it fits your macros, bro, yeah. question like, yeah, it, it, it is calories. There's seven calories per gram of alcohol. You do it, use it in the same way you would your, like carbohydrate for instance, but you know, excess drinking is, is like, pfft. Right, right. If Ellie aware, it's not ideal. <laughs> Do you, uh, you mentioned how there's that kind of confounding variable with the fact that um, light drinkers sometimes are seen as healthier than non-drinkers, but that, right, that's what you said. Um, yeah. And because non-drinkers, that is a lot of people who have had serious alcohol problems in the past. Um, so do you believe there's any benefit to small amounts of drinking? I know people say wine and, and because of, you know, the things that are in that. Um, yeah. But I don't know if they factored in that variable. Yeah, I. This is another kind of hunch, or at least you could obviously argue the the kind of epidemiological data, whichever way you want to. My my opinion is is it might be help healthful and helpful helpful and helpful for people who don't pay attention to their health that much so for instance we know that consuming alcohol will reduce platelet aggregation so essentially and one of the things that is well has you often see associations within the research is lower stroke risk in these individuals so there's mechanistic support for it being beneficial but if you are someone who's very unlikely to have a stroke because you eat really healthy you do exercise you eat oily fish um you maintain your body weight through your life cycle then uh, no i don't think i would never say to a teetotaler do you know what you might actually live a little bit longer if you just yeah. had a bit of red wine right. you you can then go down the route of making arguments for things like your sort of phytoestrogens your lignans resveratrol is the super famous right. red wine anti-aging thing and you know i think it's either mice or rat studies there's been you know oh my goodness it's it's affecting um PPAR alpha pathways and, and all this stuff and like look at this we shall be doing this and the cert cert diet all of this SIRT, if anyone wants to look up that, there's all just like this crazy biochemistry, geeky crap that it's like, 
forget about it. It doesn't make any difference to real human beings. Yeah, um, and I think it also, there's, I mean, those are things that you might not just be getting in your normal diet, but a lot of times with supplementation and things, people are already in a normal range and they think more of this thing is better. I mean, we've seen that like with vitamin E, you know, people have to yeah. take a bunch of that, cause problems. I even wonder, and this is not something I've looked um, heavily into, but um, but a lot of people talk about metformin and, and how it's this like longevity agent. And I'll see people talk about taking it and they have like an HbA1c of five. And I'm like, why are you taking metformin? And again, I'm not going to, I'm not an expert on that, but uh, it just seems to me a little unnecessary. Yeah. You know, that this is one issue and this is, this genuinely is such a cool podcast. Um, like I just, I'm like, I'm like, it's so cool talking to you because you're just like prompting all these cool discussions. You've obviously got, you've thought about this stuff so much. And I just feel like I'm going like to say to my followers, like, you guys are going to geek out on this podcast. So, because it's almost, we're not able to go into loads of depth and all these things. But I know me listening to this, like back in the day when I used to listen to podcasts, I'd be like, oh, what's that? Oh, I'm going to go read about this. Yeah. But like you, these ranges of HbA1c and they can just kind of move within this big range and not like even a movement up doesn't necessarily correlate to a worsening of health. And even for instance, triglycerides is one that people get a bit obsessed with, I think. And it's like, oh, look at the, how the triglyceride change when you move from a lower carbohydrate to a higher carbohydrate diet. But it's like, yeah, there was a movement, but we're talking a few percentage points that is still complete. But it's like, oh, but it reached statistical significance. And yeah. it's like, statistical significance doesn't mean clinical significance. Right. Um, and yeah, so people like the whole metformin thing, people are just, it's a, become a bit of a, like a black market thing. Mm. Um, it's a bit crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. So um, I appreciate the kind words on the podcast. I think this has been awesome. I think people are going to hear you and want to delve into all of your stuff. So where can people find more of your work? And also, I know you wanted to touch on a petition that you've kind of mm. put out, if you want to discuss that a little bit as well. Yeah, cool. Um, so realistically, the best thing that people can do, like my best content, because I'm at the min minute I'm in a time in my life where I'm just like super busy and I'm my kind of best content is either coming to my tour dates, which um, I want, I'm desperate to come to the US in 2020. So I would like to do maybe like four to six different cities in different states to try and get within a few hours drive or flight for people. Um, so my Instagram is where I am most of the time and on my stories because I can just do it like I try and do it like as a bit of an infotainment. I just enjoy it educate people answer questions as well as providing some light humor um and so my link there like you can two things one you can sign up for my my well, you can follow me and watch my stuff you can sign up for what i call my mac mail which is realistically if people like any of my work just get on that email email list like i i'm not an email marketer i probably send an email a month unless you then come to one of my events and then I might send you two emails um, with like the slides and stuff so that's probably the one of the main things get on my Mac mail you can you can go to my website to get on that as well just martin-macdonald.com um, my future goal is to is to populate in fact just today one of my new members of staff has been um, 
collating all the podcasts that I've been on because people always say, Martin, do your own podcast. And I'm like, I can't. I haven't got the mental space to do such a thing. Yeah. But this is, I like coming and talking to people like you because I just, this is me. Like, if I, if you meet me in a bar, this is the same stuff I talk about. <laughs> if I, right. like, I don't have much range in conversation. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I'm like, I'm basically collating a place on my website, which has every podcast I've ever appeared on. And then that'll be like my podcast. You can just go and listen to these like 30 different shows and that'll increase. So website, Instagram, I'm on Facebook and Twitter as the same at Martin Nutrition, but Instagram's the main one. Um, and yeah, I suppose just my, my kind of plea to people at, at the end of this podcast, if you have enjoyed it and you think I've kind of talked some sense and that kind of stuff, it's just basically I'm doing this petition it will end on the 2nd of January. And realistically, the the letter that we are sending to the government is kind of coming up soon. So the sooner the better. But basically, in the UK, there's like this regulation. I don't want to bore the listeners, but essentially power is looking to be given to the wrong people with regard to regulating nutrition in the UK. And that will spread worldwide to some extent in a way as well. And it's kind of this chartered thing. So if people want to just do me a favor, don't, you know, you don't have to sign it without understanding it. Go on and maybe, can I send you the link? It's like Absolutely. change.org. You can read the, the, the kind of 336 word, very expensive letter that I had to have a legal team write up. Um, unbelievable how much you pay people to write what you already told them to write. Right. Um, and uh, just to see what it's about and what it's kind of supporting. And then, you know, we will basically be using that to say, look, I think it's got about 5,000 signatures in in, in, a, in less than 20 days so far. But because I was only made aware of this issue, I'm having to do it in such a short space of time. So anyway, yeah, I'll send you the link. If people want to support me, I just I would really appreciate um, just hopping on there. And all it is is just sit, sign it and say I'm... I support this cause basically, but um, it's going to be a small part of the the bigger issue of us kind of fighting this thing of people making a bad decision that's going to affect a lot of people basically. Awesome, man. Well, I, I absolutely have that link, uh, the charity link, and link to your Instagram so people can check you out more. Amazing. Thank you. Thanks.